Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This program was recorded live on Monday, November 26, 2018, and features Cahal J. Nolan discussing his book, The Allure of Battle, A History of How Wars Have Been Won and Lost, which was the winner of the 2017 Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History at the New York Historical Society. He is in conversation with historian Andrew Roberts, who served as chair of the 2017 Prize Judging Committee. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour to um, be able to chat to Cathal Nolan, who has written this truly astonishingly good book. Um, we were given, I think, Michael Rounds in the audience here, about 200 books or so, wasn't it, Michael? Um, that um, were originally um, presented to us by publishers and that we'd called in over the previous year, we managed somehow to narrow that down to a short list of five. Um, and, uh, and, and these were five truly exceptional books. And then, uh, as a um, uh, unanimous decision of the judges, we decided that this was the, uh, this was the best. This, was, this is a, I don't think I'm in any way exaggerating, a genuinely revolutionary book in the way that you will uh, look at military history. Because it argues, and I know, of course, I'm going to um, thereby make huge generalizations, but nonetheless, uh, and this, this will probably be painful to you, Kethel, to, uh, to even hear, but I'm going to give you a chance to correct me immediately. Um, <laughs> you'll be pleased to know. But it argues effectively that battles don't matter, that military genius as a concept is wildly overestimated and might not even exist uh, in the way that you think in terms of battle-winning military genius. And also that the nationalist input into the, um, st- into the story of battles and of campaigns in these and wars, it has been so gross over the years that we have not got anything like an objective um, military history of the world. So the first thing I'm going to ask uh, Cathal is, have I repulsively misrepresented you um and secondly would you like to whether i have or haven't would you like to expound a bit on this in my view profoundly revisionist stroke revolutionary theory well the second and third points i agree with you completely but battles matter oh good Um, hallelujah (laughs) battles matter but attrition matters a lot more uh, and the argument is essentially that among major powers in the last several centuries at the minimum, and maybe even a, a wider and even universal pattern, um, that battles are fundamentally accelerants of attrition. And attrition is how you win wars in the end. Although that's not how they're started. It's almost never how people conceive of the war they're getting into. It's something they come to, the realization they come to, accept with loathing, but accept and then uh, ride it uh, to victory or defeat 
uh, in the end. And attrition affects everybody on both sides. And the metaphor I use, maybe overuse, is they're like the great powers are like sumo wrestlers uh, in the rikishi pit, and, and, and they're, 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 they're waddling back and forth, and finally one falls down with exhaustion, usually just before the other one was about to. Um, they're, they're, they're worn, they just wear each other out. Um, but there are lots of battles that you come up with that you uh, mention in this uh, book that a lot of the rest of us think are completely you know, vital, almost decisive moments that you do, um, you, you sort of undercut one after the other, after the other, you know, huge battles that, uh, that most of the rest of us do think are vital. Actually, you, you point out that they're not really, aren't, don't you? Well, I'm not, it's not entirely original. I mean, the... Uh, for well, instance, because of the great phrase, the only battle that matters is the last one. <laughs> well, but for, for example, I think there's probably a consensus among... Uh, modern military historians that Waterloo is uh, a footnote uh, to the Napoleonic Wars, not the decisive moment where Napoleon was defeated. He was defeated a year earlier. You, he was you didn't just mention that because I've written a book about the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, assu- I'm assuming that because he's just too much of a gentleman to... Uh, I'll to, put it on the shelf to, with the other 1,400 <laughs> books on the Battle of Waterloo. Um, but I, I think the best way to illustrate this point, and I may be wrong, uh, but the best way to illustrate this is to ask people, what was the decisive battle of the Second World War. And what would you say? There was none. Ah. Uh, I mean, the one that is usually cited, people will say Stalingrad. Really? The war went on through 1943, 1944, 1945. Most of the killing was done after Stalingrad. Was it an important turning point in the war? Yes, but in a war that immense, no one battle could possibly be decisive. What Stalingrad did was psychologically important. It it was the first time the worm burrowed into the German mind that we could lose. And it was the first time that young Soviets thought... We, we, we could win. I probably won't live to see it, but we could win. Um, but uh, but it, it otherwise just accelerated the attrition of the German armies that was their fundamental downfall but needed to be carried out through the rest of 43, the rest of 44, and the first half of 1945. A lot of military historians might go a little bit earlier and actually say the Battle of Moscow, Hitler not capturing Moscow in October, November 1941. But there really wasn't a Battle of Moscow. The, the, the Barbarossa campaign petered out in front of Moscow. Mm. Um, um, and if there was a Battle of Moscow, it's the Soviet counteroffensive that begins on December 5th and then continues into January. Yeah. But uh, no, I, don't think there's, I think that's a growing consensus among World War II historians that the, the decisive campaign, not battle, but campaign of the Second World War was Barbarossa and Typhoon the, from June to December of 1941. And I think you can make the effective argument that most Americans will not like that the Second World War was fundamentally decided two days <laughs> before the Americans entered the Second World War uh, in Pearl Harbor. Um, the United States made an incredible, important contributions to the war, but if I can say the, the, the First World War was clearly won on the Western Front, after all, Russia was defeated. The Second World War was clearly won on the Eastern Front. And you mentioned Pearl Harbor, but do you think that um, Japan could have won the Pacific War um, after the Battle of Midway? If it had won? No, no. After the, after the Battle of Mid- Midway, wasn't it clear that Japan couldn't win the Pacific. Yeah, Midway clarified. Naval battles tend to be more decisive than land battles because okay. there's, there's only one place to go at sea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and, and, and that, was, that was a decisive yeah. battle. But on the other hand, then how many battles were waged in the Pacific following that? How many islands had to be invaded? How many naval campaigns? The biggest naval battles in history were Leyte Gulf and the Philippine Sea. This is well after uh, Midway. Um, Japan could not have won that war. Right. And um, what, full stop, even if there had full been, stop. No, if there had mean, been no midway. I think the critical, I mean, the United States, Churchill flow, flies to, or not flies, Churchill crosses the Atlantic and meets with Roosevelt, um, uh, worrying Mrs. Roosevelt no end as they smoked and drank deep into the night, uh, planning the Second World War in December and January of 1941 mm-hmm. uh, 42. Um, and the America First pledge uh, is actually lived up to, I mean, pardon me, Germany First pledge is actually lived up to. Uh, so that by the end of the Second World War, the uh, the Japanese are defeated by about 10% of American military, 10 to 15% of American military resource commitment, and less than that percentage of British commitment uh, in Burma. And so it takes 85% of American commitment, 100% of Soviet commitment, 90% of British commitment to defeat the Germans. Everyone knew they were the real enemy, that they had to be defeated. Japan was a minor, a relatively minor military power. So you, 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 Slightly more important than Italy. But you... <laughs> um, I mean in military terms. I'm not trying to, I'm not no, no, trying no, to be no, funny. I'm just in, in military capacity, yeah. slightly more powerful than, than Italy. So the Germany first policy was a great act of state. Correct, on, correct on policy. That, that, yeah. I'm very pleased what, um, that you said what you did about uh, naval battles because um, so, so although uh, Waterloo uh, isn't a central um, feature... Um, Trafalgar is. Trafalgar is a decisive. Hallelujah again. Um, yeah, because it gives... So was Salamis. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. And this is another of the most extraordinary uh, sort of capacities of this uh, book, in that it goes back 3,000 years. He will uh, and does start right from the beginning of, um, of military history. And uh, that, it strikes me... Um, probably stems from the fact that you are an encyclopedist. Yes. I mean, you're certainly a walking encyclopedia of military <laughs> knowledge and military history. But tell us a bit more about... Um, you You uh, run the Institute of International History at Boston University. Tell us a bit more about yourself and why you know so much. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I have, for an historian, this is a terrible thing to admit, I have an appallingly bad memory. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe that. And so I, I, can, I, I can't remember all the stuff that I've read and that I've learned and that I once knew, but I wrote the encyclopedias, so I know where I put it. Um, and, I, I, and I do. I often go back to them and look up stuff and double-check, and sometimes I wrote that. I can't remember writing that, you no, know, um, no. so on. But uh, it, it was also that when I was an undergraduate, it was impossible to study military history per se. I wanted to study military history. It wasn't offered. I, I went to, I was an undergraduate from 74 to 78, um, I think. So the, um, that was the time when the military history in the universities was being turned away from, being rejected. Well, would you now f- it's openly despised. Yes, no, I was about to say, in, yes. Because oh, one, one of the reasons... People love it, but absolutely. professors don't. One of the reasons that, um, that Lou set up this, Lou Lerman set up this prize, was because he was... Um, furious at the way that it's so... The the contempt with which military history is shown by the Academy. It's not going to change. Oh. It's not going to change. That was my question. Um, But I don't think it will change. Why not? Uh, It's the the deep uh, culture in the historical profession now, particularly... And I I think it's different in Britain. 
I think it's taken more seriously. Well, then it's really sad. Uh, we've, got, we've got one chair at uh, Oxford. We've also, of course, got the uh, King's College, King's College um, yeah. war, war um, department, which I'm very proud to be a um, visiting professor of. But other than that, no. We've got, f- we've got, I think it's 42 peace studies departments and one war yeah. studies department. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's it, it's semi-ideological. It's coming out of the of the 1960s. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's it's also just the broad shift in the in in, in the again semi-ideological. That's too mm. strong a word. Um, no, it's, it's too a weak a word. It's, an, it's fully ideological. As far as I can it, say. The cultural bias toward history should now be the history of 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 little littler people and smaller things and daily affairs. And I agree. That's all good. That's important. Yeah. You know, when we do military history, we should also be interested in what soldiers eight, what they did, who they were. I mean, that, I think, is, is uh, John Keegan, your countryman, has, I think, paved the way on that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Anthony Beaver has followed up in many ways. But what it was actually like um, is, for, for a lot of academia, just completely unimportant. I had a senior colleague uh, two weeks ago tell me without nodding, without a hint of shame, uh, he said, and I quote, I don't know much at all about military history, or the history of war. And, the idea- and, I, I, and he's an Americanist. Yes. How do you study the United States without studying the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, and all the others, and the perpetual wars that we're now in? I thought it was a preposterous statement, um, mm. uh, but I wasn't surprised at all. No. What, um, one of the, you mentioned the Civil War. One of the um, minute in my view, but nonetheless, criticisms that you've come, come up against is that there isn't an entire chapter um, devoted to the uh, American Civil War in this uh, book. What's your response to that? Well, first, I write a lot about lots of civil wars. Um, uh, you have to be careful when you talk. Uh, Americans always say the Civil War. Other people had them too. Okay, yeah. um, we had a great one, by the way. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, which is which is mentioned. Um, uh, but um, there's two responses. The sort of the the sort of trite response is it's already almost 800 pages. Uh, you want another chapter on the American Civil War, and that, that was actually consideration. We we, we talked. I talked about it with the editors and so on. But the actual response is, and I think this is maybe this may surprise, is that um, the American Civil War we now look back. And we look at Crimea and we look at the Civil War and we say, I just did it, we look at the American Civil War and, and we say those are the portents of the total wars to come in the 20th century, the trenches around Richmond, the, 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 the fact that it wasn't won by battles and, and generalship, it was won by the Anaconda Plan and crushing the South and invading the South and bisecting again, I mean, across a whole continent, almost a whole continent. Mm. That presages World War I and World War II, but that's not what was thought at the time. The Europeans had observers uh, by the end of the war on both sides in most cases at most of the major battles. Um, and we have all the reports they wrote back. I'm talking about Prussians, French, British. We have the reports they wrote back to their militaries. And they said, with some minor exceptions, a few exceptions, they generally said, bunch of amateurs, we have nothing to learn from them. Um, and then, and, and so that was sort of the start of it. But what really did it was the American Civil War ends in 65. The very next year, Prussia defeats a great power, Austria, in seven weeks. Not four and a half years. Four years after that, Prussia defeats France in seven seven months. And everybody for the next half century studies the Prussian way of war. 
And they forgot about their own war in the Crimea, which ended in trenches and slaughter and 500,000 dead. They forgot about their own war. They're not going to pay attention to the Americans. So, so actually, the intellectual reason was to leave it out is because it didn't actually influence the history of war. We look back on it and say it presaged the history of war, but it didn't influence it. So, so as far as the Franco-Prussian War is concerned, that, for you, does not... Um, I mean, it, it basically ta- taught everybody the wrong lessons... Uh, that Moltke and the rest, um, Moltke the Elder, and then when you look later at Moltke the Younger, they learnt lessons of these massive battles like Sedan or Königgratz, um, Sadova, that um, actually were, were throwbacks effectively to earlier big decisive battles. And therefore, what happened in 1914-18 and in 1939-45 were the results of the wrong lessons learned. Yes. They also went back to Clausewitz and reread the history of the mid-19th century into uh, the snapshot Clausewitz took of the war of the early... You start with Clausewitz, sorry. There's a, there's a great quote oh, yeah. from Clausewitz. Um, in, he's on, quotable. Hey, he's hugely quotable. It's one of the reasons um, he was so uh, influential, wasn't it? And uh, you have here Clausewitz in 1812, Battles Decide Everything. Um, you clearly... Um, well, read the, read the next one, though. And the next one is uh, Jean de Bloch, oh, another very important uh, military historian, 1899. Instead of a war fought on to the bitter end in a series of decisive battles, everyone will be entrenched in the next war. The spade will be as indispensable to the soldier as his rifle. It's very doubtful whether any decisive victory can be gained. 1899. Should we give Stalin the last word? And then Stalin writes... Modern war is a war of motors. The war will be won by whichever side produces the most motors. Actually, there's another wonderful line of of, uh, Stalin's where he's talking about tank production because, of course, German... Individually, German tanks were almost always better than the T-34. But the T-34, he was churning out at the rate that you'll be able to tell me, but nonetheless, (laughs) it was an extraordinary rate. And, um, And Stalin said of this that, in the end, quantity is quality. Um, and, you know, there's, there's something to that, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, the Germans, uh, you know, everyone talks about tanks in the Second World War and people go back. It's, it's, it's a parlor game to compare tanks and so forth. I, I don't play that with my students. And you also they always ask play, about it. And yeah, they also ask about generals, and you don't play that no, game. No, I don't play the game of, you know, who's the better general, Montgomery or Patton or, or, or Wellington or Napoleon or whatever. Yeah. And I don't play it fundamentally because I'm not qualified. I've never commanded 100,000 men or a million men in combat. I don't know whether Lee should have gone left or right at Gettysburg. I know. You know? But, I mean, yeah, those, but, are, those are the kind of questions that, that the only people who could really give you an intelligent answer are highly trained officers who know tactics and operations. No, you've written six encyclopedias. I think I'd like, quite like to hear your answer. Well, Probably uh, a bit, bit more than some general. But I, I didn't finish answering that. Why I wrote the encyclopedias yeah, yeah. was because um, I, sat, I wasn't really able to study military history as an undergraduate. Uh, I was always sort of doing it on my own on the side. And then when I finally got, you know, got to Boston University, and I was teaching courses in diplomatic history, and I was so tired of the diplomatic revolution of the Renaissance, when I knew what was really important was the wars of the Renaissance. Yeah. Um, oh, and which? I wrote the encyclopedias uh, really as a way of teaching myself military history. So uh, in many ways, I'm an autodidact when it comes to this subject. Speaking of the wars of the Renaissance... Um, I'm just going to read a couple of pages, partly in order to uh, point out what a great writer... Um, it's in the index. 
Cathal is. And secondly, um, what an exciting and fun book this is. Uh, gory, in this case. But um, nonetheless, this is not one of those dry-as-dust academic um, uh, books. This is one that will actually take you straight into what it was like to be in a battle. And in this case, because the, you mentioned Renaissance, and this is one of the great uh, Renaissance uh, battles. It was fought in September 1515 outside uh, Milan. It's called Marinino. I am embarrassed enough to admit that I'd never heard of it. This is the final defeat of the Swiss. The front it ended their domination of infantry war. Which, as you said, had gone on for... 200 years. 1313 to 1515. It's, not, it's rare you get that nice number in history, but it's 200 years. The front ranks of the colliding masses were mutually impaled or crushed or suffocated from the weight of men pushing from behind. Corpses were held upright, wedged between locked squares by the pressure of thousands pushing hard on each side, hands on the shoulder or back of some stout fellow in front, knowing men were dying up there. Many in the front ranks could no longer use their weapons, their arms pinned and useless. Some wriggled free to stab at an enemy, but for most, death came from inside the squares, as guns and crossbow bolts were fired at point-blank ranges into men's faces and swinging halberds reached over to lop off heads and limbs. Dense packs of humanity pushed at each other like immense demented sumo wrestlers. Only at Marinino, the penalty for losing one's footing was dismemberment and death. Men fell from exhaustion and exertion, or whether stabbed or hacked, adding blood to a wide, slick pool spreading over the grass beneath the locked squares, causing yet more men and boys to be killed as they slipped and fell. Slowly the Germans were pushed backwards, each yard of gain and loss measured in death and wounds. This is not, ladies and gentlemen, a dry-as-dust um, academic book. Right. It's also a profoundly, sorry, if I can just um, butt in, profoundly moral book because it, it, first of all, it's a moral book because it very clearly hates war, and that is, um, that is a very important uh, aspect. I did not set out to write an anti-war book, no, but, but I found that I did. Yes, and secondly, one of the things that you, um, that, comes very powerfully from this is you also hate the vanity of leaders and the vanity of of um, many generals. Do you want to and the vanity of nations, which I think is not as frequently said as it should be. And that nations are also vain. What we mentioned earlier about about nationalism um, and the nationalist uh, bias that you see in history. Talk to us a bit more about that. Well, I was shocked. Uh, there were many historians, and I still admire them, and I admire their work and had, you know, have taken much from their work, um, some British, some French, some American, and so on, Russians uh, and others. Um, and I was shocked at, uh, as, when I, because I was doing this survey, and I think other people maybe don't notice this because they aren't covering such a large period, but when I'm sort of gathering it in from everywhere and reading everything I can possibly get my hands on, um, I notice this pattern, and the pattern is the, the, that the military historical profession too often is pandering to the nationalist hero worship of the... Um, so, I mean, in British military history, I mean, Marlborough isn't just the greatest of English generals. He's one of the greatest of generals, period, and a decisive reinventor of yeah, battle. Yeah, you really go for Marlborough, don't you? He fought you? four battles. Yes, and he, yeah, and you say he lost one of them. Yes, um, no one else says that. No, no one else says <laughs> that at all. And I don't think I... Anyway, no one. Yeah, OK. Um, but um, nonetheless, uh, he... Um, 
you know, Schellenberg also, I mean... It doesn't sure, no, but he also had his brilliant yeah. moments. I mean, there's no question yeah. that these so-called modern great captains yeah. um, were, were, were tactically superior. But uh, you th- don't believe there's such a thing as genius? I think war, especially, uh, I think war in general, a battle, uh, even a single individual, large battle, or, or, and war certainly, is just so vastly complex that it's beyond human control, let alone an individual human's control. I just don't think... Um, we see rationality, we see um, will, we see genius uh, where we want to see it because we don't want to conclude that war is a cacophonous clash of mass armies and that, um, as Machiavelli understood, Fortuna. You know, yes, you're very, good pos- luck. you're very positive about Machiavelli. I, mean, I like Machiavelli. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Machiavelli, Machiavelli would live, it came at the end of an era that was arguing for centuries about the just war in uppercase. And he said, there's just war. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's... Uh, is it, sorry, there's another great gag that you come out with, uh, which is uh, on this concept of the just war, uh, where you say um, that, okay, it's... It, it's <laughs> It's such a good line. By the way, I have to I'm say... Not, I, mustn't, I mustn't hack it around and get it... While you're looking for it, I have to say about your reading out the two paragraphs on Maragnano that um, uh, this is why my students leave my lectures deeply depressed. <laughs> okay. I, I, I've actually had students come back to me and say, you know, after your last lecture, I went back to my dorm and cried. Um, and the, the lecture in case was, was redone. And I, I, that's happened more than once. And in every case, I've always told my students... If you hadn't gone back to your dorm and cried, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. You know, I mean, this, this is the response you ought to have. Oh dear, I didn't have the response when I read your book. I'm sorry. About that. <laughs> um, I was just too interested, I suppose. Anyway, here's the, here's the epigram. There are loads of epigrams in this, and and uh, and writers should use epigrams. And that, this is a great one. It, it's about the the uh, just war, and you write, canon law bowed to the iron law of canon. So, oh, I wish I'd written that. Um, now, my editor's in the room, and that's one of the ones I think he wanted to pull out. Yeah, of. I know they always do. <laughs> don't they? They always do. Oh no, um, I know. He was great. I know. Uh, overall, um, no battle can be fairly said to have de- decided the outcome of a war. Now, you say that on page 115. Did I um, say that? Yeah, I don't agree with that. Uh, <laughs> There's okay, a few. Well, There's a few. There, there are a few. Well, but... this is the thing. I'm hoping everyone's writing down on these pieces of paper with the pencils you've just been given a few that uh, are, are going to um, that I'm going to come up with, and, and you're going to uh, change your mind over or apologise for. <laughs> uh, maybe to do with Marlborough, with any luck. Well, let me give you the. I think the most spectacular. Okay, go ahead. I was going to the most spectacular, <laughs> the most spectacular example of a battle that is still. There's been three or four books published on it in the last five years on the Battle of Cannae. Yes. Um, where Hannibal killed 74,000 legionaries and yeah. so on. Um, Hannibal then proceeded to spend 17 years on the Italian peninsula, and Carthage lost the war. Yes, absolutely. How, how, how idiotic were the Germans to, in the 1890s, through... Von Schlieffen actually did, a, as you know, a set, a set of studies called the Kanai Studies. And the Schlieffen plan is modeled on the annihilation battle of Kanai 2,400 years earlier. I mean, so. Yeah. And he, also, the number... Who does that? Germans. I wonder whether... <laughs> also, I wonder whether or not number, the numbers were a bit... Um, I mean... They, At Kanai? Yes, they assumed that... that, that uh, that they got that because of the wedding rings that they piled up. 
but I, I asked a couple of classical historians, and the numbers are ballpark, apparently. Genuinely? Yes, in the 70,000 range. And Hannibal lost about five. Wow. I mean, it was, a, it, it was the classic of the so-called Battle of Annihilation, which then Clausewitz writes about the Battle of Annihilation, Molk talks about the Battle of Annihilation, and the Germans were obsessed by the Battle of Annihilation in both World War I and World War II. They keep seeking the Battle of Annihilation. They keep seeking to recreate modern canais, and they failed spectacularly. And what you point out also in your book is that um, what's much more uh, common in, in, in warfare is, in fact, sieges, is slow um, attrition, as you say. You have a brilliant analysis of the 40-year war between Frederick the Great and, uh, and um, uh, Catherine the Great. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Maria, uh, Maria Theresa. Maria Theresa. Maria Theresa. Yeah. And the way in which... I mean, that would have made a fantastic book in itself, I think. Has that been done? It's a super idea. There's a very good book on the... The duel between these two. No, they're actually, they're not, there's not a book on that. Yeah. On that long war, there's a book on the Seven Years' War, there's a book on the other war. Yeah, absolutely. But 1740 to 1780... Um, is 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 fascinating, and as you point out, it's much more. Uh, of course, it was much more seasonal. Fighting was much more seasonal in the uh, uh, mid 18th century, but um, it's much more taking small, small and holding small amounts of territory or, or a few, small numbers of border fortresses and so on. And it strikes me that um, that that's the way that you see. Um, see struggles. I mean, you, you, that's what you think that they should be like, rather than this desperate attempt to win some magnificent, huge Canai-style uh, victory, which actually is so risky that you can actually lose the war as a result. Most kings understood that battles were too risky to engage their very expensive, very pretty army. Um, and uh, would not give their generals permission to fight them. Uh, most uh, combat in that period and for, for much of history was siege warfare. But I, I hope I don't come across, I, I certainly didn't intend to be some, a godlike voice saying this is how it should be and this is how it shouldn't be. I'm just writing this is how it is, mm. this is how it was. Um, uh, I'm not, um, I, 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 and, and how it was was the reality is most of the time, siege warfare, that is an in a, in a, inescapable analogy, an inescapable uh, effect of the natural superiority of the defensive position, which has been growing greater with the additions of firepower uh, in, in the modern period. Well, this is another thing that you're very good on, is the way in which um, new technologies tend to, although they t- don't change the vanity and, uh, and the um, underlying sort of part of the human condition which leads to war, they... Um, they also, surprisingly, have had much less of an effect on the, the, these, these new um, weapons that have revolutionised warfare on the battlefield haven't actually revolutionised warfare. They give you a very temporary advantage until in the modern period with everybody else has industrial capacities. They catch up. Yeah. You can have an advantage in panzers at the beginning of the Second World War. Three years later, everybody has tanks. Yeah. Or the Ottomans, who are and able we had the to Russians fire, built, um, right. fire cannonballs, huge cannonballs, a mile across the Bosphorus. I mean, that's an ex- that whole thing of the fall of uh, stone Constantinople. Stone yeah. cannonballs is quite extraordinary. Yeah. Tell me, do you think in the age of cyber and um, the future huh. and nuclear and and uh, wars that aren't necessarily even kinetic, um, do, can you can you see that your theory might? 
um, not work in a um, in a war that through I don't know electromagnetic pulses might um, mean that our GPS system doesn't work from because of something that's happened in space and that somehow therefore an aggressive power. Yeah, I, I think if there if you, I don't really work in this field, but if you want me to sort of think off the cuff, um, I think that the, my suspicion is that the pattern will repeat, uh, where people think they have a significant technological uh, advantage, they think they have a war-winning advantage that they need to, you know, use right at the beginning, Uh, so somebody will think we could wipe out your entire defensive system with the the EMPs, space-based EMPs, or or, or whatever. I mean, I can see that tempting someone into launching an EMP assault, the first strike. What then follows? A war. And if everybody's electronics and superior weapons are wiped out, what do we do? Flesh will go to war. We'll put conscripts back out there. Uh, We will put soldiers back out there. Because what's fundamentally important isn't the technology and the temptation it leads to to try and win. It's the fact that you didn't win because the guy on the other side is also a major power or a coalition of powers. And they're not going to quit. And you ultimately, in order to win a war, have to have your boots on the ground in the other guy's cities. Infantry. Okay, we're um, going to now turn on to questions from you. I'm just going to mentally read them first, just in case they're moronic. Um, uh, which they very rarely are here, I hasten to add. I mean, if, if ever, if ever. Um, but nonetheless, this is Aren't you best. glad the revolution succeeded? <laughs> <laughs> Hardly think about that any day of the week. <laughs> to what extent do you believe that modern military leaders and strategists appreciate the thesis uh, the, of your book? I can tell you that directly because I was asked to, about 18 months ago to go out to Fort Leavenworth uh, and talk to the Army Command School, which was extremely humbling. I mean, mm. I, I spent my whole time there saying, why are you talking to me? Yeah. Um, and and, and I'm, that's not false humility. That's, I mean, no, no, why no. are you talking to me? These guys know what they're doing. Mm. Uh, so, but, but they asked me to give a presentation. I gave a talk. Mm. And I was feeling a bit cheeky in the, Q, in, in the Q&A. So I asked the audience... Um, um, which is mostly military and intelligence and they, they write the they write the army literally doctrine. 360 colonels and yeah they write the army doctrine they're the best of the best yeah um and i said to you i said to them do you think we could be in a new 30 years war and they didn't blink so i said what about a new hundred years war and they didn't really blink and in the briefings they gave me, they know that we're actually in year 18 of a 30 years war. In fact, they go beyond that because they said, they, I asked, where will we be in 30 years? And they said, still in Afghanistan. They, they think, so we're talking a half century. That's the, that's the army. Yeah. So, I mean, I, and I was briefed on lessons learned. They were a group that was writing lessons learned. Uh, briefed, not classified, but obviously, but, but briefed mm. on the non-classified conclusions. And, um, and so, again, I was being way too cheeky, uh, but it was a long day. <laughs> and I said, have we learned any lessons? And they said, we have. The politicians have not. Mm. They fully expect to be overcommitted in additional foolish wars that are not thought through. That's very interesting in your... Um, but they know what they're doing. They're real pros. In your history of the, um, of the Hundred Years' War, um, the actual Hundred Years' War rather than this one, and um, 
and there were battles like Matigny and Cotillon, which are not taught in. Uh, they certainly weren't taught to me when I was. No, it's all. It's all. It's all. It's all. It's all. Agincourt. Exactly. And Henry the Cressy and Poitiers. Well, you can blame Shakespeare around the subject of your newest book, Churchill, uh, who, um, uh, who, and yeah. the Agincourt Carol, which is also yeah. a huge. No, thing exactly. The ones we, ones we won. It's very, very much like that. But the French again. You know, the English won the early battles. Yeah. Who won the Hundred Years' War? Yeah. France. And, and actually, we um, occupied Paris for an enormous amount of time. Right? Uh, the French, uh, that's, that's, of course, Jean, uh, Jean d'Arc, Joan of Arc's great contribution, yeah. is to return Paris to the French monarchy. Yes. Uh, the kings uh, did not control Paris. No. The Burgundians and the English did. Do you know, interesting statistic, uh, do you know how many German soldiers were killed by the resistance in Paris between 1940 and 44? I don't. None. Not one. Well, to defend our loyal French allies, uh, the Nazi retaliation policy was one dead soldier, 100 dead hostages. Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't have happened it in worked. London. Wouldn't have happened in London, I can tell you that. As probably, the, uh, as probably the only serving general in the audience, I would like to hear what lessons your book has for generals. Well, in a sense, that we've... Um, uh, answer that. Um, uh, 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 the answer is, in all humility, mm. humility. Yeah. I think uh, commanders in combat and civilians especially uh, who have command authority and board-making, uh, board, war-starting authority uh, need a far greater dose of humility than they exhibit. I think vanity is the problem. I like the old-fashioned language. I think vanity is the fundamental problem at multiple levels. I think humility is the solution. Therefore, I think we're stuck. Uh, comments upon the sociological impact of the Thirty Years' War and its resolution at the Peace of Westphalia. The, what um, the sociological impact of the Thirty Years' War and its resolution, inverted commas, resolution at the Peace of Westphalia. So, yeah, do you see the Peace of Westphalia? Do you see that uh, that key moment in 1648 as being so key? Well, generations, uh, well, at least the last 40 years of international relations theory and international relations teaching in the United States, and maybe more generally, has been to start with the peace. Political scientists start yeah. with the Peace of Westphalia. Right and they always tell their students, religion was taken out of international history at the Peace of Westphalia. <laughs> How's that working out? <laughs> It's a, it's a, I mean, the Peace of Westphalia was a major piece, and it did remove, except for margins of Europe, the, Bal- the Balkans, Northern Ireland, places like that, it, and, and the English Civil Wars, which actually were, mm. which followed immediately. Um, but the, the um, religion was removed as a, a fundamental cause of war in Europe in the sense that uh, the Peace of Westphalia established, I don't invade your Protestant country to turn it Catholic. You don't invade my Catholic country to turn it Protestant. Mm-hmm. But that's about all. Yeah. Um, yeah, the idea that everybody... And, of course, totally the Peace of Westphalia did not achieve that. The Thirty Years' War achieved that. Mm-hmm. And it achieved it by being fought to a stalemate in which Catholic could not dominate Protestant, Protestant could not dominate Catholic. And so they sat down together over four years uh, to make this, this grand peace, which they finally did, and the Pope condemned it. Uh, and, and, and said it is iniquitous and must not be followed, even if t- undertaken by oath. And it's a wonderful quotation from Even if a third of, of the European population died in the... Yeah. Uh, in yeah. the, the 30 Years' War decimated Germany's population, decimated Europe's population to a greater proportional extent than either World War I or World War II. 
Yeah. I mean, how bad does your history have to be that in Germany you can still scare little children with tales of the 30 years' war as opposed to the two world wars? Yes, yes. Is a world war inconceivable in the 21st century due to the number of nuclear weapons on the planet? No. Yeah, quite right. Um, how do you propose getting more students involved in history, especially from a young age? Hmm. Film. Film. Uh, this is a visual generation. Uh, you really can... And, and, and when it's done right, historical films... I don't mean documentaries. I mean, yeah. you know, some of them. Uh, but his historical films, when done correctly, spark the imagination, spark the curiosity like a great teacher does. Okay, well, you who then have, they go and... You're going to have to name two or three now. What, films? Yeah. That are well, I mean, I don't... I, that are historically accurate enough to... Well, I'll make you one that's not historically accurate. No, everyone could do that. But, but, no, but, but not historically accurate, but was profoundly important was yeah. Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, uh, because it, yeah. you know, a, film is not, movie. a film is not history. A yeah. film is a work of art. Uh, yeah. It has different measurements than, than history. And you're that trying, was a great film. And you're trying to get, it certainly was, and you're trying to get people interested in, in reading rather than just in watching more war movies. Uh, yeah, because it's not a reading generation outside Harry Potter, which I see is outside. <laughs> um, by the way, speaking of films that, don't, that are not historically accurate, Dunkirk... Oh, I well, know, I know. Landing on the... Landing oh, on the, Kenneth uh, Branagh looking endlessly yeah, into yeah, the yeah. sky for the RAF. You know. uh, I know. Um, why wasn't... Yeah, no, exactly. Actually, once you start... Aimful. Once you start... Also, the, the, um, the, the hurricane, or is it a spitfire, that flies around for about two minutes with no petrol, uh, no, no fuel in it. Why wasn't the British victory in the Battle of Britain decisive? Because what really deterred the, German, uh, the Germans from crossing the Channel was a battle that was never fought, which was the threat of the Royal Navy, um, which would have been overflown by everything the RAF had. They would have been, I can, this, had the Germans come across with the Italian Navy, which was a significant Navy in support, with elements of the captured French Navy in support, and Dutch and Norwegian and other smaller navies in support, if they'd had enough ships to come across, which is why Churchill took that incredible decision to sink part of the French the French fleet, um, uh, to, to stop this from happening. Had they come across, the Royal Navy would have done suicidal operations in the channel. I can see Royal Navy destroyers ramming German ships. I can see battleships going down, guns blazing in the channel. Uh, and and, and, and even, it would have been suicidal, uh, spectacular battle. And the Kriegsmarine knew they couldn't win it. Mm. And uh, on several different occasions told Hitler, we can't go for another three weeks. No, no okay, we can't go for another four more weeks. We can't go for... And then it was September. Yeah. And he turned east. So, uh, the, I mean, uh, that's not just belittle the contribution of the Battle of Britain, but the reason we remember it as a decisive battle is because your guy, his incredible use of the English language, Churchill's rhetoric, uh, elevated it. I mean, so he gave us names for things that don't really fit. The Battle of France is over. It wasn't the Battle of France. It was the Battle of France and Belgium and Holland and all of the rest of it. It was the Battle of Western Europe. Bit right? of a mouthful, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. Which, <laughs> which is... Which is why he was prime minister and I'm country <laughs> professor. <right? laughs> um, what's the common? But I get the last word. What you sh- yeah, you, sh- you sure do. What's the common thread for the victors? Is it the willingness to win at all costs? The what was the first? The common thread for the victors. Endurance. Is it, is it yes? The willingness to win at all costs. No. 
it's right. endurance. Right. Roughly the same thing. Okay, uh, well, maybe we, yeah. we can. But uh, it's the it's the but it's no, it's more than that. It's also the capacity yeah, to to, to uh, suffer a massive defeat, a series of defeats, and come back again and again and again. Britain never won really any of the major battles of the Napoleonic Wars until the very last one. Mm-hmm. Britain won the war. Um, the, the, French, the French were defeated repeatedly in the Hundred Years' War. France won the war. Um, the British were thrown off the continent four times in 11 months in 1940 to, to 41. Uh, Britain was part of a grand coalition that won the war. Do you think our leaders, past and present, have worked hard enough to develop strategies to avoid wars of attrition? In a kind of cheeky way, almost too hard. That's part of the problem. In, it, we're so, uh, we, found it, we find attrition so loathsome. We think it lacks heroism. We think it lacks dignity. We think as if a soldier's death in a battle is any different from a soldier's death in a trench. Um, but, but we think that. Uh, we've been, uh, the poetry has told us to think that. The culturists, the films have taught us to think that. So it's the attempt to avoid attrition uh, which leads to the short war delusion, which gets you into the wars of attrition in the first mm-hmm. place. Um, that's, I think, probably what, the, the major thesis of the book. Sorry? It gets you into worst wars of attrition. Ultimately. Yes, yes. Because what happens is you think you can defeat a great power the way Molk defeated Prussia or Molk defeated Austria. They planned for half a century to do that again. Although Molk himself told the Germans in 1890, he told the Germans famously, he stood in front of the Reichstag and he said, uh, don't do it. You can't do what I did. It can't be done again because what we did changed things. There's now grand coalitions on the other side. You will start at either a new seven years war, he said, or, and I quote, a new 30 years war. Mm. That's what they did, 1914 to 1945, the new 30 years war. And also with with, uh, huge losses um, in in, uh, terms of human losses. And territorial losses. Look at Germany. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you think, uh, actually speaking of that, that... Part of the problem with the um, Versailles Treaty was not that it was too uh, hard on the Germans, but that it wasn't hard enough. It was too harsh to it was too harsh to um, bring home the reality of the actual military defeat that they suffered. Mm. Sorry, it wasn't harsh enough to bring home the reality exactly. of the military defeat, and it was too harsh to be a piece of reconciliation. So, should we have not had an armistice in November 1918, but instead actually gone onto German territory because the whole of the First World War was fought outside Germany? Yes, and of course, as you know, the, there was not a single German boot, uh, there was not a single Allied soldier's boot anywhere on German territory. Exactly, when the, when and the if we marched down... And that, 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 yeah, and that allowed, that allowed the Germans to conclude, the German soldiers to conclude, and the lie to be told, the Dolchstoss to stab in the back. We never lost the war, we were betrayed by the Jews, and we were betrayed by the socialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were betrayed by the home front. Um, and so on. But no, the armistice was due. The German army was done. The German army was defeated. The German army sued for peace, uh, sued for uh, ceasefire. Um, and then the diplomats uh, wasted it Ruined uh, at Paris. Did wars mainly consist of rapid shifts in power or steady transitions in power? Oh, it's a big question. Isn't it? Pretty yeah, it depends general. what period we're talking about. But well, no, you, you do... In terms of great powers, rapid shifts just don't happen. I mean, look, the, we're always talking about someone, such and such a country's in decline. British used to talk about the Austro-Hungarian empires being in decline. Mm. Well, you know, empires are big. They're full of resources. They're full of 
uh, populations yeah. and, 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 and ideas and talented people. And empire can go on declining for a very long time. Yeah. Um, well, hundreds Ot of years, actually. The Ottomans did, certainly. And, I mean, the Russians know. are doing it now. Yeah. It's a, it's a slow decline, but with... Yeah. And what, so what do we learn from that? Is that you... Is that, well, firstly, you don't need to go to war very much... Um, and secondly, that um, just sort of watch and wave. I mean, is that the best way of dealing with Russia then? With Russia? Yeah, just see it just slowly decline away rather than try no, to... No, because the, we also know there's a pattern in international history that declining powers, losing prestige, tend to be prickly and aggressive and so on. I mean, uh, Russia's policy is driven almost entirely, it seems to me, by distraction, by foreign engagements, and a very popular policy of uh, enhancing prestige through military action. Uh, the Chinese are largely driven by prestige, although they've shifted because they're so economically successful now. But uh, Chinese foreign policy, Chinese uh, domestic propaganda, I have lots of Chinese students confirm this. You don't see them as a declining power? No, they're, they're, they're an ascending power. Clearly an ascending power. Uh, they're an ascending power, power yeah. But wasn't, uh, wasn't Germany an ascending power in 1914? Why did they... No, Germany was afraid that it was being passed by Russia, which was in fact successfully reforming yeah. in the last years of the Tsars. Um, there, there's a famous 1912 cabinet meeting in Germany where they, they, they actually discussed this, and they said, we have a window of opportunity uh, for Weltmacht, for world power. Power. And it will close, they estimated, by 1920. So they made the decision in 1912 not to start war, but that this was their window, and if the right circumstances came along, they would accept war when it came. And then the Austrians were collapsing. They couldn't survive without their only real ally in Europe. They backed the Austrians, and we got what we got. Would you please comment on modern forms of warfare, such as, well, cyber warfare we've had a go at, guerrilla warfare, um, uh, and the war on terror in which the victory of one side over the other is much less clear. Yeah, my, my thesis, and I wouldn't call it a theory, my thesis is, um, is really a great power thesis for the most part, but I think it's pretty obvious. First, guerrilla warfare is fundamentally a strategy of attrition by the guerrillas. It's, it's, it's a strategy of moral more than material attrition, but it can convert to material attrition as well. I do think in the Cold War period, in the post-45 period, what we had were uh, very large so-called guerrilla wars, but really, really what they were were great power wars of attrition by proxy. So the Soviets supported the North Vietnamese. They wore the Americans down. They wore the Americans out. And the Americans remembered. And the Americans supported the Mujahideen in the 1970s and 1980s in a deliberate payback uh, against, against the Soviets with all of the unintended consequences that you always get when you start any war. Ladies and gentlemen, a man with the brain the size of a planet, Cathal Nolan. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.